As we begin, I'm going to pray again because God has, has laid something pretty powerfully on my heart for us tonight, and I pray that we would experience that in his presence. So if you'd bow your heads once again and just pray with me. Lord in heaven, as we came into this place tonight, I get the sense that there are burdens of numerous sorts. There are, there are life's burdens. There are things that are, have been difficult for us, whether at work or at home. But also, Father, there are burdens of what we are talking about tonight, self-righteousness, of trying to keep up a facade, trying to keep up the appearance that we're good, that I'm okay. And God, people of God, God wants you to know tonight that it is okay to strip away those burdens and that facade, that you would experience Jesus and his presence here tonight, and his yoke would be easy and his burden light. I pray this over you in the name of Jesus. Amen. So tonight we're talking about, really, it can be boiled down to the phrase that we hear so often, maybe we've even, even uttered it to ourselves, is, well, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I'm kind of digging deeper into what that means. Speaking of good people, who perhaps have fallen from grace a little bit, Aunt Becky, Lori Laughlin, from Full House, Aunt Becky married to, to, to Uncle Jesse, and they're, they're dear, sweet twins. I don't quite remember their names. But you know, if you follow current events, that they have been embroiled in controversy through the, the college admission scandal, through the, I believe it's called Operation Varsity Blues or something along those lines, that 33 other parents have been indicted on, let me, let me get this right, this is a very curious charge, of honest services fraud is what they're being charged with. I don't know how honest and fraud fit in the same indictment, but they do honest services fraud. The college admissions process ought to be honest. Did they fraudulently went about it? I don't know. But they paid to get ACT scores raised. They paid to get fraudulent scholarships for some of their kids that could not earn on their own merit getting into places like Yale, Stanford, and USC. And I mean, Aunt Becky, she's Aunt Becky, she's so wholesome. And actually, she's the only one, she and her uh, clothing designer husband are the only ones who have not pled guilty and could get somewhere uh, northwards of 24 months in prison if they are convicted. Can you imagine? She's not going to do so well in prison. That's not, that's not Aunt Becky. But, but, but she from Full House as well as, uh, what was her name? Uh, Huffman, Felicity Huffman from Desperate Housewives. I mean, this is just crazy. But before we sit here and look, they screwed up bad. They screwed up real bad. But before we sit here and say, oh, woe is them. Look, those terror, how, how dare they? How, I mean, Lori Laughlin, she's, part, she's on the Hallmark Network now. I know, I know Jess loves the Hallmark Network. I know my wife and my parents love the Hallmark ne Network. When Calls the Heart is her new show. If, that, if there could be a more wholesome name, they're on a creative hiatus trying to figure out what to do without their, their main character. So again, just before we cast too much shade on, on our dear Aunt Becky and Lori Laughlin, or one and the same, what were they doing? Let's take just a brief step back. I'm not trying to justify any of this, but what were they doing? Out of deep and desperate, mind you, love for their children, they were trying to do something to, to give their children a leg up. They were trying to give their children something that they didn't earn on their own, but they wanted their kids to go to a good college. They, it, 
Those of us that have children, this is what we all want, right? For our kids to get into good college, get a good education, which sets them up positively for life. They went about it the wrong way, but that's what they were doing, right? And so wouldn't this be the perfect example of someone to sit back and say, despite all the fraud, all the lies and cheating and, you know, but I'm a good person, right? I was just trying to do this to help out my, my poor children to, to, to have a leg up in life. I'm a good person. What does, what does that, but what does that mean? How often do we justify things that we do with, well, but I'm a good person, or, or have you heard this before, but I'm a good Christian, which I think is kind of an oxymoron. Is there, is there any such thing? I'm a good person. What does that mean? How many times in our mind do we justify, well, yeah, I may have cussed that person, but they cut me off on the freeway, or a myriad of other things that we justify in our own minds. Because what does that mean? What does that mean that I, I'm a good person? What do, what do we mean? What does anyone mean when they say, well, you know, what's the most common answer? Well, you know, I haven't raped, robbed, or killed anyone, so I'm a good person, right? <laughs> Your Honor, the glove doesn't fit. It wasn't me, right? Like, it doesn't work out like that. All that means, if you didn't do those things, you're not a horrifically awful person. Okay, that doesn't in any way, shape, or form mean that you are a good person. That just makes you not bad. Okay, well, I, I open doors for people. I help old ladies across the street. I pay my taxes on time. You know, I even volunteer to soup kitchen. Okay, okay, not trying to minimize any of those things. But again, what is our definition of good? Have you, have you helped the starving children in Africa lately? I know a friend that gave his car away to someone that needed it. Have you done something like that? Have you helped a family that's been on the street to get off of it, get back on their feet? I mean, what is the definition? How much good do we have to do to be considered good? What, what is the definition of good? And let's say we do purify ourselves to the nth most degree. Does that then mean that the ills and the evils that we have done in the past somehow just get washed away, that there is no consequences for those things? What do we mean when we say, I'm a good person? As I said earlier, I'm a, a good Christian is oxymoronical. That truly, the premise of Christianity is that none of us are good. We all are sinful, broken, and in need of a Savior. Uh, I, I came across a quote this past week. It was actually shared with me from one of our other pastors. And I think it gives us a very sobering look at ourselves and at the interior of our hearts and what it really looks like to be good or, for that matter, not be good. And it's by Rebecca McLaughlin from a book she wrote called Confronting Christianity. It has been said that no friendship in the world would last a day if we could see each other's thoughts. Run that test on yourself between now and tomorrow. Think of everyone you spend time with and ask, would I let them see a transcript of my thoughts? My marriage would die, my children would be crushed, and my friends would leave. My thoughts are not all bad. Many are good and kind and true. But like a bag of flour infested by maggots, no part of me is completely pure. Again, the entire premise of Christianity is that none of us in and of ourselves are at least by God's standards or God's definition good. 
We are in need of a Savior. James chapter 2, verse 10 says this, and I think we perhaps have not read it as, as we should at times. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Whoever keeps the whole law but is guilty of breaking one portion of it is guilty of breaking all of it. The law is not, is not so many different laws. It is a holistic, it is the law. It's either you keep it or you don't keep it. The wise one Yoda said, there is no try, do or do not. You either keep it or you don't. Thank you, appreciate that. You either keep it or you don't keep it. Because morality, doing the right thing, making good choices, as my kids hear about in school all the time, which is a good thing, but morality is not the main point of Christianity. And when we make it the main point of Christianity, we make it, we make, when we make Christianity about morality, about the do's and the don'ts, we miss the point. We miss the point and we fall into self-righteousness. The premise of our talk tonight is this, my talk tonight. This is a quote from Tim Keller, and it forms the basis for what we're going to be talking about this evening. The good news of Jesus is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. It starts with being honest about our shortcomings. And when we try and convince ourselves or pretend before other people, I'm okay, I'm good, I got it all together. We want people to believe that. We want to believe that about ourselves. But Christianity and relationship with Jesus and vitality of life in him is not found until we can be honest and even become aware of our deep shortcomings. One of my favorite pastors, A.W. Tozer, put it this way, it's doubtful whether God can use a man greatly until he has hurt that man deeply. Maybe, maybe put in more, more simpler terms, how about this? You remember my guy, Ivan Drago from Rocky IV? I must break you, God says. I must break you of all sin, all self-righteousness before I can use you. This has been Voices Night with Dave. But but true though, I mean, that, that's the idea. Simply put, that's the idea. Broken for good, God must break us as Drago insisted he must break Rocky as he broke Apollo, very sadly. God needs to break us of our own propensity to self-righteousness, self-righteousness and trying to put up this, this godly Christian facade that I'm good. I'm okay, I'm doing all right, I'm, I'm serving God, you know, it's, it's, it's I, I'm not perfect, right? None of us are perfect, but I'm doing okay. What does that mean? What does that look like? We are utterly and completely desperate for God, and it's time we just be honest with ourselves about that and learn what a moment-by-moment -moment reliance and desperate dependence looks like. And that's our passage tonight in John chapter 3. Brief introduction to it. We're going to be in verse 1 of, of John chapter 3. This is Nicodemus and Jesus. They meet at night. So Jesus has been 
in the temple where all the money changers are. They had turned the, the temple into what he called the den of thieves. There were money changers. They were selling things. They were buying things. It was like a market. Jesus comes in, overturns all the tables. What are you doing? What have you done to the house of the Lord? And then the Pharisees, who are sitting by watching all this happen, are like, who are you to do this? Who are you to do? And then Jesus bring, comes back against them with great authority, and they're kind of put in their place and rather ashamed of themselves. And so what they do is they send Nicodemus. Nicodemus, his name actually means victory, victory for the common people. Kevin was sharing with me that one of his theology professors said that Nicodemus actually is kind of equated, his name means, means the hammer. This guy was the Pharisee of Pharisees, kind of right along with, with the Apostle Paul as we read about in Scripture that he was Pharisee of Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the guy. He, with regard to keeping the law, doing the right thing, <clears throat> faultless. And so they send the big guns in to Jesus to bring, more or less to put him in his place. And so that's where we pick this up in John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they were born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. So firstly, a really simple note here that is actually really important because of the book that we're in in John is that Nicodemus came to see Jesus at night. He came to see him at night. And in John, there is this ongoing motif, this, this ongoing contrast between light and dark. Dark representing literal spiritual darkness and separation from God. And the fact that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night is meant to represent that he and the religious, religious leaders of the day are in, despite being religious leaders, are in spiritual darkness. I, I want to show you this. John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says this, talking about this overarching theme in John of light versus dark. In him, him being Jesus, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Nicodemus and the Pharisees are in spiritual darkness. They're coming to really come against to question or to diminish the authority that Jesus already has before the people because of all the things that he's done. And he tries to give him some props at first. So he calls him teacher. He calls him rabbi. Yeah, I mean, I really just can't deny all the things that you've done, but make no mistake. He's there. This is a power struggle, and he's there to assert his dominance. And again, the Pharisees, Nicodemus for that matter, created 600 and 13 extra laws around the Ten Commandments to make absolutely sure for, for them as the, fair, as the ruling class, as the religious leaders, and all of Israel, to make sure that no one actually could possibly even have a hint of breaking any of those laws. And so Nicodemus, with all his obedience, with all his incredible knowledge, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, he would have been the top student in Hebrew school, which is how he got to this position. I mentioned a few weeks ago that religious leaders in this days, this was a theocracy at least for the, the Jewish nation, and so religious leaders held the most power. This was the guy, and more or less, he's coming before Jesus, putting out his resume. 
yeah, what have, what have you done, Jesus? Who are you? I, I'm Nicodemus. I'm the hammer. Who are you? What does Jesus tell him? He brings this incredible paradox that just kind of throws Nicodemus into a tizzy that you want to come after God? No one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they are born again. You think you can enter the kingdom of heaven because of all the good stuff you've done, because you're putting this resume before me. No one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they are born again, truly and completely changed. And Nicodemus is like, what? Born again, enter into my mother's womb a second time? I don't think you understand the biology that's going on here, Jesus. Like, what are you talking about? And as you look at this, that idea of being born again, it's wholesale change. There's a Bible commentator named Gary Burge. He simply puts it this way, that God's work in the world and in, in, in us is not a question of fixing a part, but rebuilding the whole. It's not that we come to Jesus and he begins to go to work on us. It's like he's kind of chipping away some of those rough edges, dealing with a few sins here and there. No, Jesus comes in, he moves in and changes the whole thing. He truly and completely transforms us from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this, if anyone is in Christ, anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has gone, the new has come. This is a complete and utter transformation. A couple weeks ago, actually it was about a month ago now, before coming here on a Sunday night, I was trying to create some inroads in the community, build some relationships in the community, and I actually went to open mosque day at, at the mosque down on State College. They showed us what their daily prayers looked like. They gave us a delicious Persian meal. It was lovely. And they did a Q&A session where they were explaining a little bit more about the Islamic faith. And there was a fella in, uh, sitting in the row ahead of me. And during this Q&A portion, he raises his hand. And I was just kind of sitting there listening to what he was saying. It was like, it was amazing. And he was sharing, look, how do you achieve salvation in Islam because, that's how we said it, it really was, because I've tried out the whole Christianity thing and all that, and he, he mentioned, he mentioned this story, and, and I've tried out Christianity, and you know, the whole story of Jesus on the cross with a with thief and everything like that, and how he tells him, oh, I believe in you, Jesus, you don't belong up here, and then Jesus forgives him. Jesus forgives him, and that, that thief Gets to go to heaven now. That's not fair. That's garbage. How do I earn? How do, how do Muslims earn their way to God? I know, that, I know a little bit about the five pillars. Explain that to me a little bit more. And the, I believe he was an imam was there and, and went into the five pillars and everything and how you seek God. And that, I mean, that's, that's it, right? That's the tipping point. That's the difference of all other world religions, is the religion, kind of by definition, is the Tower of Babel. It's man reaching up to God. If I do this, God, if I do that, I'm good in your eyes. I've earned something from you, right? And that's, that's what he wanted. He so felt that desire in and of himself to, to be on the throne of his life and to make God his debtor. Well, I've done all this for you, God. I have kept the, the, the rule, every rule, every Every commandment that you've given me, I've kept. So now what do I get? 
Where is my blessing? You owe me now. Every other belief system from, the, from atheists that believe that we can just do it on our own, there is no other power in the universe, we, do it, we make our own way, whether it be Hinduism, whether it be Buddhism, and trying to rid ourselves, working really hard to rid ourselves of desire, of evil, and everything like that, and Islam living out the five pl- Christianity is so different. So different. It is not us obeying all these laws so that somehow we can earn our way to God. It is God saying, I know you can't. I know you fall short. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that too. That's why out of love I sent Jesus. And that's how Jesus answers Nicodemus as we continue on in John chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You were Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then would you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness so so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. These are the, the basics of faith in God, the basics of the scriptures. And Nicodemus, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the, the greatest religious leader, pastor, if you will, of the day, does not under, understand them. He says, like begets like. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. It's crazy of us, right? We begin by saying, oh, Jesus, I am so in need of a savior. My sin, I repent, I turn from it, I need you to save me. And then we go out and try to live the Christian life by being really, really good, by working really hard to be good. The very thing we admitted, the whole premise that we admitted that we cannot do in the first place. Paul says in Galatians, very well, explains this, this kind of really foolish and crazy idea that we have a tendency to do after we come to faith. He says this, are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by you believing in what you have heard. What we began in the spirit, that God, I need you to change me, now I'm gonna go and try and bring about in the flesh to serve you, to work really hard to be a good person and a good Christian. Is that how it works? Or does, does spirit give birth to spirit? Because as he says there, the, the spirit, those who are born of the spirit, spirit's like the wind. We don't know where it's come from. We don't even know where it's going, but we experience its effects. Why, do, why does 
Jesus explain the, the movement of the Spirit like that? Because we cannot control it. That's what we want to do, isn't it? That's what the guy at the mosque wanted to do. I want a, a linear formula, the do's and the don'ts, for me to be in control and for me to receive something, salvation, blessing, whatever it may be from God. I want to be in control. But the wind, we can't be in control of the wind. And there's, there's a freeing portion of that too, right? That if, if seeking after God is like seeking after the wind, we not only should we not control it, but we cannot control it. It's like a picture a little kid running after, you know, a kite up in the wind or literally running after those, the, the daisy uh, seeds that are kind of flying up in the wind. That's not daisies, whatever it is, you know, the things that fly. What, what are they? Dandelions. They're dandelions. There you go. There you go. But imagine a kid running after those with joy and whimsy and just kind of a light heart. That's how we're supposed to see God. That's the childlike faith. You can't control it. He doesn't owe you anything because you're a good person and you did everything you're supposed to do. You get the freedom and the joy of seeking after him and not being in control and him doing it to you. Spirit gives birth to spirit that by intimacy with God through his Holy Spirit is how he changes us. This is not our work. We simply choose him and he does the work on us and we get to freely and joyfully seek after him as Jesus finishes off in, in John chapter three, verses 16. And again, this is the most foundational verse of all of Christianity that we share with all the kids in Sunday school, and yet Nicodemus, the Pharisee of Pharisees, completely missed it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have, been, that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. In the sight of God. Broken for good. It's the idea that when we break a bone sometimes, you, know, you put it in a splint and everything, and if you were just to go home, if you were just to go home, that it would heal. Let's say you broke your arm. Your arm would heal, but it would heal incorrectly. It would heal either askew, you might be in pain, you might not be able to use it right, but it would heal. But if you go to the doctor, very often, you go to the doctor, and what does the doctor do? They have to re-break it again so that they get it in perfect alignment so that it heals correctly and so that you have full function. So as, as much as possible, you don't have pain when it heals because it's functioning properly. Broken for good. We must take all that good that we think that we have and allow God to strip it away as if there was, were somehow some badge of honor before him and realize that all we have, all we have ever had and all we need is he and he alone. But this begins by being honest about our brokenness. Honest with God 
maybe first and foremost, honest with ourselves. But the beauty is we don't have to pretend. We don't have to pretend to be good. He knows. He knows. And believe me, I know, you know, from Nicodemus and, frankly, pastors and and whatnot, they get put up on these pedestals improperly. We are human just like everyone else. And then let me tell you, if God can use me, God can use you. If God can use the guy that, that when he finally came to grips with ministry as his calling and got called out of, out of idolatry of wealth and into ministry and then looked at people who were seeking after going, doing normal jobs and making a lot of money and judged them, oh, how can you do something so, so soulless running after money when some of us are called to selflessly serve in ministry? If, if God can use that pious turd, he can use you. If he can use the guy that when growing up in, in high school and things like that, well, I'm not sleeping around, but I'm doing pretty much everything else with my girlfriend, but I'm not sleeping around. Aren't I okay? And the thing, what a, what a hypocritical bunch of garbage. Oh, well, guy, the guy that, didn't, that doesn't steal. No, no, I, pastors don't steal, right? Or did I literally lie on my time card at a job I had while I was in college and steal from that employer? Oh, I don't, I don't abuse anyone like those terrible people out there, right? Right? Yeah, but you get angry and are darn impatient with your children sometime and downright selfish with your wife at times. And look, some, some of these things God is, is, has delivered me from. Others, he is still delivering me from. But if God can use me, God can use any of us but we first must be honest and strip away that self-righteousness. And so I'm gonna invite the band uh, to come up. And we're gonna finish again with the, the full premise of what, what we're talking about here tonight, and that's that quote from Tim Keller, that the good news of Jesus is this, that we, I, am more sinful and flawed in myself than I ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, I am more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than I ever dared hope. The grace of Jesus, the incredible patience and freedom and forgiveness in Jesus changed Nicodemus. John chapter seven, Nicodemus was the one challenging the rest of the Pharisees who wanted to see Jesus arrested and then eventually crucified. Nicodemus was all, well, well guys, now, do, do we make a habit of condemning someone before they have a trial and by actually weighing their actions? Nick, has he bewitched you too, Nicodemus? What are you talking about? He was the one defending Jesus in John chapter 7. And in John chapter 19, he was the one that went with Joseph of Arimathea to adorn Jesus' dead body with spices before they put him in the tomb. Nicodemus was changed by this one seemingly simple evening with Jesus. He was changed by the grace of God, not by religion, not by Nicodemus, you better change your way, son, do this, do that, and figure it out. He was changed by the grace of Jesus. And so for us, I pray that 
tonight we would be changed by that same grace. Now, many of us have come to faith. Many of us believe and we receive that salvation, but now we have, what we started in the spirit, we've continued in the flesh. And so, tonight, my question to you is, what is that? When you, when you say in your mind, maybe you do something wrong, it's like, well, but, but, but I'm a good person. What do you go to? Where does your mind go? Where does your heart go to? What do you hold on to? When you, when you try and convince yourself, I'm good, I'm okay, I'm doing all right, when someone asks you that, how you doing? I'm all right, I'm good. What's, what's actually in the back of your mind? What's gnawing away at you that is not actually okay? So what we're gonna do is as we continue on uh, with our service and, and enter into a time of response is that I'd, I'd invite everyone to, to close your eyes and to hold out your hands, palms up. And what this represents, what's in your palms right now, if you can visualize it, is everything is everything that you bring before God that you value and that you, where you find your self-righteousness. It's those things that you hang on to that are not God. And that you know that he's bringing before you right now. And they may be good things. They may be very good things but that you're hanging on to them instead of hanging on to the Savior. And so now symbolically, before God, I want you to turn your hands over, palms down. And that all those false identities, all of those things that cannot justify, that cannot save, that they fade away, that they fall out of your hands. And then as we, we continue on in worship here, just for a moment, I know some of you are uncomfortable with this, that's okay. I want you to put your hands up over your head, your arms up over your head. And now, you bring nothing to the table. Your hands are empty, but you reach out to your Savior. You reach out to Jesus Christ and say, Father, it is you and you alone that I hang on to. I have nothing to offer you. I can do nothing of eternal worth on my own. I have you, and I have you alone. But you know what? That is infinitely more than I could ever possibly need. You are my strength, you are my life, and you are my salvation, my beloved Father. And I just pray over you in these moments as we finish with worship and respond to Jesus that you would remember how beautiful he is. How beautiful the salvation that first brought you out of sin and death and into his beautiful life. And that today it would be a renewal of that. I'm yours and yours alone, Father, and I have none but you. None but Jesus. Amen.